Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Peter runs off in a final mad dash to secure a secret testimony. But will it be enough to save his brother? Dorothy Sayers, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The vintage episode for the week is The Body Snatcher by Robert Louis Stevenson. Be sure to check it out on Tuesday. If you've enjoyed the show, please become a monthly supporter and help us keep doing what we do. Please go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter for as little as $5 a month. As a thank you gesture, we'll send you a coupon code every month for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. It's a great way to help us keep producing amazing audiobook content. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a supporter today. The Classic Tales Book Club's first meeting is set. We will be meeting via Zoom on March 13th at 4 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time. That should make it about 7 o'clock Eastern Time. I'll be joined by the illustrious Christopher Ouellette and we'll have a fun little chat talking about the show, and whatever else comes up. So mark your calendars for March 13th. I'm working on setting up the Kickstarter project for Dickens' Bleak House. This is a long one, and I can't wait to dive into an immersive story like this. It's been so long. I'm working on the artwork now, and I'll have more information in the weeks to come. Big thanks to Classic Tales listener and enthusiast, Ammon Anderson, for helping me set this up. And now... Clouds of Witness, Part 8 of 9, by Dorothy Sayers. Chapter 13, Manon That one word, my dear Watson, should have told me the whole story, had I been the ideal reasoner which you are so fond of depicting. Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes Thank God! said Parker. Well, that settles it. It does, and yet again it doesn't, retorted Lord Peter. He leaned back against the fat silk cushion in the sofa corner meditatively. Of course, it's disagreeable having to give this woman away, said Parker sensibly and pleasantly, but these things have to be done. I know, it's all simply awfully nice and all that. And Jerry, who's got the poor woman into this mess, has to be considered first, I know. And if we don't restrain Grimethorpe quite successfully, and he cuts her throat for her, it'll be simply ripping for Jerry to think of all his life. Jerry, I say, you know, what frightful idiots we were not to see the truth right off. I mean, of course, my sister-in-law is an awfully good woman and all that, but Mrs. Grimethorpe, phew! I told you about the time she mistook me for Jerry. One crowded split second of glorious all-overishness. I ought to have known then. 
Our voices are alike, of course, and you couldn't see in that dark kitchen. I don't believe there's an ounce of any feeling left in the woman except sheer terror. But ye gods, what eyes and skin! Well, never mind. Some undeserving fellows have all the luck. Have you got any really good stories? No? Well, I'll tell you some. Enlarge your mind and all that. Do you know the rhyme about the young man at the war office? Mr. Parker endured five stories with commendable patience, and then suddenly broke down. Hooray! said Whimsy. Splendid man! I love to see you melt into a refined snigger from time to time. I'll spare you the really outrageous one about the young housewife and the traveller and bicycle pumps. You know, Charles, I really should like to know who did Cathcart in. Legally, it's enough to prove Jerry innocent, but Mrs. Grimethorpe or no Mrs. Grimethorpe, it doesn't do us credit in a professional capacity. The father weakens, but the governor is firm. That is, as a brother, I am satisfied. I may say light-hearted. But as a sleuth, I am cast down, humiliated, thrown back upon myself, a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. Besides, of all defences, an alibi is the most awkward to establish, unless a number of independent and disinterested witnesses combine to make it thoroughly airtight. If Jerry sticks to his denial, the most they can be sure of is that either he or Mrs. Grimethorpe is being chivalrous. But you've got the letter. Yes, but how are we going to prove that it came that evening? The envelope is destroyed. Fleming remembers nothing about it. Jerry might have received it days earlier, or it might be a complete fake. Who is to say that I didn't put it in the window myself and pretend to find it? After all, I'm hardly what you would call disinterested. Bunter saw you find it. He didn't, Charles. At that precise moment, he was out of the room fetching shaving water. Oh, was he? Moreover, only Mrs. Grimethorpe can swear to what is really the important point, the moment of Jerry's arrival and departure. Unless he was at Grider's Hole before twelve-thirty at least, it's immaterial whether he was there or not. Well, said Parker. Can't we keep Mrs. Grimethorpe up our sleeve, so to speak? Sounds a bit abandoned, said Lord Peter. But we will keep her with pleasure, if you like. And meanwhile, pursued Parker, unheeding, do our best to find the actual criminal? Oh, yes, said Lord Peter. And that reminds me. I made a discovery at the lodge. At least I think so. Did you notice that somebody had been forcing one of the study windows? Oh, really? Yes. I found distinct marks. Of course, it was a long time after the murder. But there were scratches on the catch, all right. The sort of thing a penknife would leave. What fools we were not to make an examination at the time. Come to think of it, why should you have? Anyhow, I asked Fleming about it. And he said he did remember, now he came to think of it, that on the Thursday morning he found the window open and couldn't account for it. And here's another thing. I've had a letter from my friend Tim Watchett. Here it is. My lord, about our conversation, I have found a man who was with the party in question at the Pig and Whistle on the night of the 13th last month, and he tells me that the party borrowed his bicycle and same was found afterwards in the ditch where the party was picked up with the handlebars bent and wheels buckled. Trusting to the continuance of your esteemed favour, Timothy Watchett. What do you think of that? 
good enough to go on, said Parker. At least we are no longer hampered with horrible doubts. No, and though she's my sister, I must say that of all the blithering she-asses, Mary is the blitheringest, taking up with that awful bounder to start with. She was jolly fine about it, said Mr. Parker, getting rather red in the face. It's just because she's your sister that you can't appreciate what a fine thing she did. How should a big, chivalrous nature like hers see through a man like that? She's so sincere and thorough herself, she judges everyone by the same standard. She wouldn't believe anybody could be so thin and wobbly-minded as Goyle's till it was proved to her. And even then she couldn't bring herself to think ill of him till he'd given himself away out of his own mouth. It was wonderful the way she fought for him. Think what it might have meant to such a splendid, straightforward woman to— All right, all right, cried Peter, who had been staring at his friend, transfixed with astonishment. Don't get worked up. I believe you. Spare me. I'm only a brother. All brothers are fools. All lovers are lunatics. Shakespeare says so. Do you want to marry, old man? You surprise me, but I believe brothers always are surprised. Bless you, dear children. Damn it all, Whimsy, said Parker, very angry. You've no right to talk like that. I only said how greatly I admired your sister. Everyone must admire such pluck and staunchness. You needn't be insulting. I know she's Lady Mary Whimsy and damnably rich, and I'm only a common police official with nothing a year and a pension to look forward to. But there's no need to sneer about it. I'm not sneering, retorted Peter indignantly. I can't imagine why anybody should want to marry my sister, but you're a friend of mine and a damn good sort, and you've my good word for what it's worth. Besides, dash it all, man, to put it on the lowest grounds, do look at what it might have been. A socialist conchy of neither bowels nor breeding, or a card-sharping dark horse with a mysterious past. Mother and Jerry must have got to the point when they'd welcome a decent, God-fearing plumber, let alone a policeman. Only thing I'm afraid of is that Mary, having such beastly bad taste in blokes, won't know how to appreciate a really decent fellow like you, old son. Mr. Parker begged his friend's pardon for his unworthy suspicions, and they sat a little time in silence. Parker sipped his port, and saw unimaginable visions warmly glowing in its rosy depths. Whimsy pulled out his pocket-book, and began idly turning over its contents, throwing old letters into the fire, unfolding and refolding memoranda, and reviewing a miscellaneous series of other people's visiting cards. He came at length to the slip of blotting paper from the study at Riddlesdale, to whose fragmentary markings he had since given scarcely a thought. Presently Mr. Parker, finishing his port and recalling his mind with an effort, remembered that he had been meaning to tell Peter something before the name of Lady Mary had driven all other thoughts out of his head. He turned to his host, open-mouthed for speech, but his remark never got beyond a preliminary click like that of a clock about to strike. For even as he turned, Lord Peter brought his fist down on the little table with a bang that made the decanters ring, and cried out in a loud voice of complete and utter enlightenment, Manon Lesko! Eh? said Mr. Parker. Boil my brains, said Lord Peter. Boil him and mash him and serve him up with butter as a dish of turnips, for it's damn well all they're fit for. Look at me! Mr. Parker scarcely needed this exhortation. 
Here we've been worrying over Jerry and worrying over Mary and hunting for Goyleses and Grimethorpes and God knows who, and all the time I'd got this little bit of paper tucked away in my pocket. The blot upon the paper's rim. A blotted paper was to him, and it was nothing more. But Manon, Manon, Charles, if I'd had the grey matter of a woodlouse, that book ought to have told me the whole story, and think what we'd have been saved. I wish you wouldn't be so excited, said Parker. I'm sure it's perfectly splendid for you to see your way so clearly, but I have never read Manon Lescaut, and you haven't shown me the blotting paper, and I haven't the foggiest idea what you've discovered. Lord Peter passed the relic over without comment. I observe, said Parker, that the paper is rather crumpled and dirty, and smells powerfully of tobacco and Russian leather, and deduce that you have been keeping it in your pocket-book. No, cried Whimsy incredulously. And when you actually saw me take it out, Holmes, how do you do it? At one corner, pursued Parker, I see two blots, one rather larger than the other. I think someone must have shaken a pen there. Is there anything sinister about the blot? I haven't noticed anything. Some way below the blots, the Duke has signed his name two or three times, or rather his title. The inference is that his letters were not to intimates. The inference is justifiable, I fancy. Colonel Marchbanks has a neat signature. He can hardly mean mischief, said Peter. He signs his name like an honest man. Proceed. There's a sprawly message about five-something of fine-something. Do you see anything occult there? The number five may have a cabalistic meaning, but I admit I don't know what it is. There are five senses, five fingers, five great Chinese precepts, five books of Moses, to say nothing of the mysterious entities hymned in the Dilly Song. Five are the flamboys under the pole. I must admit that I have always panted to know what the five flamboys were, but not knowing I get no help from it in this case. Well, that's all, except a fragment consisting of O-E on one line, and is Fo beneath it, F-O-U. What do you make of that? Is found, I suppose. Do you? That seems the simplest interpretation. Or possibly, his foul. There seems to have been a sudden rush of ink to the pen just there. Do you think it is his foul? Was the Duke writing about Cathcart's foul play? Is that what you mean? No, I don't make that of it. Besides, I don't think it's Jerry's writing. Whose is it? I don't know. But I can guess. And that leads somewhere? It tells the whole story. Oh, cough it up, Whimsy. Even Dr. Watson would lose patience. Tut, tut, try the line above. Well, there's only O-E. Yes, well, well, I don't know. Poet, poem, manoeuvre, lobe edition, citron, it might be anything. Don't know about that. There aren't lashings of English words with O-E in them, and it's written so close it almost looks like a diphthong at that. Perhaps it isn't an English word. Exactly. Perhaps it isn't. Oh. Oh, I see. French? Ah, you're getting warm. Sir, ouvre, oeuf, boeuf. No, no, you were nearer the first time. Sir, cur. Cur. Hold on a moment. Look at the scratch in front of that. Wait a bit, er, uh, sir. How about purser? 
I believe you're right. Percer le coeur, yes. Or percera le coeur, will pierce the heart. That's better. It seems to need another letter or two. And now your is found line. Foo. Who? I didn't say who, I said foo. I know you did, I said who. Who? Who's foo? Oh, is. Pas de Je suis fou. I'm crazy. A la bonheur. And I suggest that the next words are de douleur, of pain, or something like that. They might be. Cautious beast, I say they are. Well, and suppose they are. It tells us everything. Nothing. Everything, I say. Think. This was written on the day Cathcart died. Now. Who in the house would be likely to write these words? Percera le coeur, je suis fou de douleur. We'll pierce the heart, I am crazy with pain. Take everybody. I know it isn't Jerry's feast, and he wouldn't use those expressions. Colonel or Mrs. Marchbanks, not Pygmalion, likely. Freddy, couldn't write passionate letters in French to save his life. No, of course not. It would have to be either Cathcart or... Lady Mary. Rot. It couldn't be Mary. Why not? Not unless you changed her sex, you know. Of course not. It would have to be Je suis folle. Then Cathcart? Of course. He lived in France all his life. Consider his bank book. Consider... Lord Whimsy. We've been blind. Yes. And listen. I was going to tell you. The Surete writes me that they've traced one of Cathcart's bank notes. Where to? to a Mr. Francois, who owns a lot of house property near the Etoile, and lets it out in appartement, no doubt. When's the next train? Bunter, my lord. Mr. Bunter hurried to the door at the call. The next boat train for Paris? 8.20, my lord, from Waterloo. We're going by it. How long? 20 minutes, my lord. Pack my toothbrush and call a taxi. Certainly, my lord. But whimsy, what light does it throw on Cathcart's murder? Did this woman... I've no time, said Whimsy hurriedly, but I'll be back in a day or two. Meanwhile, he hunted hastily in the bookshelf. Read this. He flung the book at his friend and plunged into his bedroom. At eleven o'clock, as a gap of dirty water, disfigured with oil and bits of paper, widened between the Normania and the quay, while hardened passengers fortified their sea stomachs with cold ham and pickles, and the more nervous studied the body jackets in their cabins, while the harbour lights winked and swam right and left, and Lord Peter scraped acquaintance with a second-rate cinema actor in the bar, Charles Parker sat, with a puzzled frown, before the fire at 110 Piccadilly, making his first acquaintance with the delicate masterpiece of the Abbé Prévost. Chapter 14 The Edge of the Axe towards him. Scene 1. Westminster Hall. Enter as to the Parliament. Bolingbroke, Ormel, Northumberland, Percy, Fitzwater, Surrey, the Bishop of Carlisle, the Abbot of Westminster, and another Lord, Herald, Officers, and Bagot. Bolingbroke. Call forth, Bagot. Now, Bagot, freely speak thy mind. What dost thou know of noble Gloucester's death? Who wrought it with the king, and who performed the bloody office of his timeless end? Bargot, and set before my face the Lord Ormel. K. 
King Richard II. The historic trial of the Duke of Denver for murder opened as soon as Parliament reassembled after the Christmas vacation. The papers had leaderettes on trial by his peers, by a woman barrister, and the privilege of peers, should it be abolished, by a student of history. The evening banner got into trouble for contempt by publishing an article entitled The Silken Rope by an Antiquarian, which was deemed to be prejudicial, and the Daily Trumpet, the labour organ, inquired sarcastically why, when a peer is tried, the fun of seeing the show should be reserved to the few influential persons who could wangle tickets for the Royal Gallery. Mr. Murbles and Detective Inspector Parker, in close consultation, went about with preoccupied faces, while Sir Impey Biggs retired into a complete eclipse for three days, revolved about by Mr. Glibbery, K.C., Mr. Brownrigg Fortescue, K.C., and a number of lesser satellites. The schemes of the defence were kept dark indeed, the more so that they found themselves on the eve of the struggle deprived of their principal witness, and wholly ignorant whether or not he would be forthcoming with his testimony. Lord Peter had returned from Paris at the end of four days, and had burst in like a cyclone at Great Ormond Street. "'I've got it!' he said. "'But it's touch and go. Listen!' For an hour Parker had listened, feverishly taking notes. "'You can work on that,' said Whimsy. "'Tell Murbles I'm off!' His next appearance was at the American Embassy. The ambassador, however, was not there, having received a royal mandate to dine. Whimsy damned the dinner, abandoned the polite, horn-rimmed secretaries, and leapt back into his taxi with a demand to be driven to Buckingham Palace. Here, a great deal of insistence with scandalised officials produced first a higher official, then a very high official, and finally the American ambassador and a royal personage while the meat was yet in their mouths. "'Oh, yes,' said the ambassador. "'Of course it can be done.' "'Surely, surely.' said the personage genially. We mustn't have any delay, and might cause an international misunderstanding in a lot of paragraphs about Ellis Island. Terrible nuisance to have to adjourn the trial. Dreadful fuss, isn't it? Our secretaries are everlastingly bringing things along to our place to sign about extra policemen and seating accommodation. Good luck to you, Whimsy. Come and have something while they get your papers through. When does your boat go? Tomorrow morning, sir. I'm catching the Liverpool train in an hour, if I can. You surely will, said the ambassador cordially, signing the note. And they say the English can't hustle. So, with his papers all in order, his lordship set sail from Liverpool the next morning, leaving his legal representatives to draw up alternative schemes of defence. Then the peers, two by two in their order, beginning with the youngest baron, Garter, king of arms, very hot and bothered, fussed unhappily round the three hundred or so British peers who were sheepishly struggling into their robes, while the heralds did their best to line up the assembly and keep them from wandering away when once arranged. "'Of all the farces!' grumbled Lord Attenbury irritably. He was a very short, stout gentleman of a choleric countenance, and was annoyed to find himself next to the Earl of Strathgillan and Begg, an extremely tall, lean nobleman, with pronounced views on prohibition and the legitimation question. "'I say, Attenbury,' 
said a kindly brick-faced peer, with five rows of ermine on his shoulder. Is it true that Whimsy hasn't come back? My daughter tells me that she heard he's gone to collect evidence in the States. Why the States? Dunno, said Attenbury. But Whimsy's a dash clever fellow. But he found those emeralds of mine, you know. I said, Your Grace, Your Grace, cried Rouge Dragon desperately, diving in. Your Grace is out of line again. Eh, what? said the brick-faced peer. Oh, damn me! Must obey orders, I suppose, what? And was towed away from the mere earls and pushed into position next to the Duke of Wiltshire, who was deaf and a distant connection of Denver's on the distaff side. The royal gallery was packed. In the seats reserved below the bar for peeresses sat the dowager Duchess of Denver, beautifully dressed and defiant. She suffered much from the adjacent presence of her daughter-in-law, whose misfortune it was to become disagreeable when she was unhappy, perhaps the heaviest curse that can be laid on man who is born to sorrow. Behind the imposing array of counsel in full-bottomed wigs in the body of the hall were seats reserved for the witnesses, and here Mr. Bunter was accommodated, to be called if the defence should find it necessary to establish the alibi, the majority of the witnesses being pent up in the king's robing-room, gnawing their fingers and glaring at one another. On either side, above the bar, were the benches for the peers, each in his own right a judge both of fact and law, while on the high dais the great chair of state stood ready for the Lord High Steward. The reporters at their little table were beginning to fidget and look at their watches. Muffled by the walls and the buzz of talk, Big Ben dropped eleven slow notes into the suspense. A door opened. The reporters started to their feet. Council rose, everybody rose. The dowager duchess whispered irrepressibly to her neighbour that reminded her of the voice that breathed o'er Eden. And the procession streamed slowly in, lit by a shaft of wintry sunshine from the tall windows. The proceedings were opened by a proclamation of silence from the sergeant-at-arms, after which the clerk of the crown in chancery, kneeling at the foot of the throne, presented the commission under the great seal to the Lord High Steward, who, finding no use for it, returned it with great solemnity to the clerk of the crown. The latter accordingly proceeded to read it at dismal and wearisome length, affording the assembly an opportunity of judging just how bad the acoustics of the chamber were. The sergeant-at-arms retorted with great emphasis, "'God save the king!' whereupon Garter, king of arms, and the gentleman usher of the black rod, kneeling again, handed the Lord High Steward his staff of office. "'So picturesque, isn't it?' said the dowager. "'Quite high church, you know.' The certiorari and return followed in a long sonorous rigmarole, which, starting with George V by the grace of God, called upon all the justices and judges of the old bailey, enumerated the Lord Mayor of London, the recorder, and a quantity of assorted aldermen and justices, skipped back to our Lord the King, roamed about the city of London, counties of London and Middlesex, Essex, Kent and Surrey, mentioned our late sovereign Lord King William the Fourth, branched off to the Local Government Act 1888, lost its way in a list of all treasons, murders, felonies and misdemeanours by whomsoever and in what manner soever done, 
committed or perpetrated, and by whom or to whom, when, how, and after, what manner, and of all other articles and circumstances, concerning the premises, and every one of them, and any of them, in any manner, whatsoever, and at last triumphantly, after reciting the names of the whole grand jury, came to the presentation of the indictment, with a sudden, brutal brevity. The jurors, for our lord the king, upon their oaths, present that the most noble and puissant Prince Gerald Christian Whimsey, Viscounts in George, Duke of Denver, a peer of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, on the thirteenth day of October, in the year of our Lord, one thousand nine hundred and twenty, in the parish of Riddlesdale, in the county of Yorkshire, did kill and murder Dennis Cathcart. After which proclamation was made by the sergeant-at-arms for the gentleman usher of the Black Rod to call in Gerald Christian Whimsey, Viscount St. George, Duke of Denver, to appear at the bar to answer his indictment, who, being come to the bar, kneeled until the Lord High Steward acquainted him that he might rise. The Duke of Denver looked very small and pink and lonely in his blue serge suit, the only head uncovered among all his peers. But he was not without a certain dignity, as he was conducted to the stool placed within the bar, which is deemed appropriate to noble prisoners, and he listened to the Lord High Steward's rehearsal of the charge with a simple gravity, which became him very well. Then the said Duke of Denver was arraigned by the clerk of the Parliaments in the usual manner, and asked whether he was guilty or not guilty, to which he pleaded not guilty. Whereupon Sir Wigmore Rinching, the Attorney-General, rose to open the case for the Crown. After the usual preliminaries to the effect that the case was a very painful one, and the occasion a very solemn one, Sir Wigmore proceeded to unfold the story from the beginning. The quarrel the shot at three a.m., the pistol, the finding of the body, the disappearance of the letter, and the rest of the familiar tale. He hinted, moreover, that evidence would be called to show that the quarrel between Denver and Cathcart had motives other than those alleged by the prisoner, and that the latter would turn out to have had good reason to fear exposure at Cathcart's hands. At which point, the accused was observed to glance uneasily at his solicitor. The exposition took only a short time, and Sir Wigmore proceeded to call witnesses. The prosecution being unable to call the Duke of Denver, the first important witness was Lady Mary Whimsey. After telling about her relations with the murdered man, and describing the quarrel, at three o'clock, she proceeded, I got up and went downstairs. "'In consequence of what did you do so?' inquired Sir Wigmore, looking round the court with the air of a man about to produce his great effect. "'In consequence of an appointment I had made to meet a friend.' All the reporters looked up suddenly, like dogs expecting a piece of biscuit, and Sir Wigmore started so violently that he knocked his brief over upon the head of the clerk of the House of Lords sitting below him. "'Indeed. Now, witness.' Remember you are on your oath, and be very careful. What was it caused you to wake at three o'clock? I was not asleep. I was waiting for my appointment. And while you were waiting, did you hear anything? Nothing at all. Now, Lady Mary, I have your deposition sworn before the coroner. I will read it to you. Please listen very carefully. 
You say, at three o'clock I was wakened by a shot. I thought it might be poachers. It sounded very loud, close to the house. I went down to find out what it was. Do you remember making that statement? Yes, but it was not true. Not true? No. In the face of that statement, you still say that you heard nothing at three o'clock? I heard nothing at all. I went down because I had an appointment. My lords, said Sir Wigmore, with a very red face, I must ask leave to treat this witness as a hostile witness. Sir Wigmore's fiercest onslaught, however, produced no effect, except a reiteration of the statement that no shot had been heard at any time. With regard to the finding of the body, Lady Mary explained that when she said, Oh God, Gerald, you've killed him, she was under the impression that the body was that of the friend who had made the appointment. Here a fierce wrangle ensued as to whether the story of the appointment was relevant. The lords decided that on the whole it was relevant, and the entire Goyle story came out, together with the intimation that Mr. Goyle's was in court and could be produced. Eventually, with a loud snort, Sir Wigmore Rinching gave up the witness to Sir Impey Biggs, who, rising suavely and looking extremely handsome, brought back the discussion to a point long previous. Forgive the nature of the question, said Sir Impey, bowing blandly. But will you tell us whether, in your opinion, the late Captain Cathcart was deeply in love with you? No, I am sure he was not. It was an arrangement for our mutual convenience. From your knowledge of his character, do you suppose he was capable of a very deep affection? I think he might have been, for the right woman. I should say he had a very passionate nature. Thank you. You have told us that you met Captain Cathcart several times when you were staying in Paris last February. Do you remember going with him to a jeweller's, Monsieur Briquet's, in the Rue de la Paix? I may have done. I cannot exactly remember. The date to which I should like to draw your attention is the 6th. I could not say. Do you recognize this trinket? Here the green-eyed cat was handed to witness. No, I have never seen it before. Did Captain Cathcart ever give you one like it? Never. Did you ever possess such a jewel? I am quite positive I never did. My lords, I put in this diamond and platinum cat. Thank you, Lady Mary. James Fleming, being questioned closely as to the delivery of the post, continued to be vague and forgetful, leaving the court on the whole with the impression that no letter had ever been delivered to the Duke. Sir Wigmore, whose opening speech had contained sinister allusions to an attempt to blacken the character of the victim, smiled disagreeably and handed the witness over to Sir Impey. The latter contented himself with extracting an admission that witness could not swear positively one way or the other, and passed on immediately to another point. Do you recollect whether any letters came by the same post for any of the other members of the party? Yes, I took three or four into the billiard-room. Can you say to whom they were addressed? There were several for Colonel Marchbanks and one for Captain Cathcart. Did Captain Cathcart open his letter there and then? I couldn't say, sir. I left the room immediately to take his grace's letters to the study. Now, will you tell us how the letters are collected for the post in the morning at the lodge? 
they are put into the post bag, which is locked. His grace keeps one key, and the post office has the other. The letters are put in through a slit in the top. On the morning after Captain Cathcart's death, were the letters taken to the post as usual? Yes, sir. By whom? I took the bag down myself, sir. Had you an opportunity of seeing what letters were in it? I saw there was two or three when the postmistress took them out of the bag. I couldn't say who they was addressed to or anything of that. Thank you. Sir Wigmore Rinching here bounced up like a very irritable jack-in-the-box. Is this the first time you have mentioned this letter, which you say you delivered to Captain Cathcart on the night of his murder? My lords, cried Sir Impey, I protest against this language. We have as yet had no proof that any murder was committed. This was the first indication of the line of defence which Sir Impey proposed to take, and caused a little rustle of excitement. My lords, went on counsel, replying to a question of the Lord High Steward, I submit that so far there has been no attempt to prove murder, and that, until the prosecution have established the murder, such a word cannot properly be put into the mouth of a witness. Perhaps, Sir Wigmore, it would be better to use some other word. It makes no difference to our case, my lord. I bow to your lordship's decision. Heaven knows that I would not seek, even by the lightest or most trivial word, to hamper the defence on so serious a charge. My lord, interjected Sir Impey, if the learned Attorney-General considers the word murder to be a triviality, it would be interesting to know to what words he does attach importance. The learned Attorney-General has agreed to substitute another word, said the Lord High Steward soothingly, and nodded to Sir Wigmore to proceed. Sir Impey, having achieved his purpose of robbing the Attorney-General's onslaught on the witness of some of its original impetus, sat down and Sir Wigmore repeated his question. I mentioned it first to Mr. Murbles about three weeks ago. Mr. Murbles is the solicitor for the accused, I believe. Yes, sir. And how was it? inquired Sir Wigmore ferociously, settling his parsnay on his rather prominent nose and glowering in the witness. That you did not mention this letter at the inquest or at the earlier proceedings in this case. I wasn't asked about it, sir. What made you suddenly decide to go and tell Mr. Murbles about it? He asked me, sir. How he asked you? And you conveniently remembered it when it was suggested to you? No, sir. I remembered it all the time. That is to say, I hadn't given any special thought to it, sir. Oh, you remembered it all the time, though you hadn't given any thought to it. Now, I put it to you that you had not remembered about it at all till it was suggested to you by Mr. Murbles. Mr. Murbles didn't suggest nothing, sir. He asked me whether any other letters came by the post, and then I remembered it. Exactly. When it was suggested to you, you remembered it, and not before. No, sir. That is, if I'd been asked before, I should have remembered it and mentioned it, but not being asked, I didn't think it would be of any importance, sir. You didn't think it of any importance that this man received a letter a few hours before his decease? No, sir. I reckoned if it had been of any importance, the police would have asked about it, sir. Now, James Fleming, I put it to you again, 
that it never occurred to you that Captain Cathcart might have received a letter the night he died till the idea was put into your head by the defence. The witness, baffled by this interrogative negative, made a confused reply, and Sir Wigmore, glancing round the house as much as to say, You see this shifty fellow? proceeded. I suppose it didn't occur to you either to mention to the police about the letters in the post-bag? No, sir. Why not? I didn't think it was my place, sir. You didn't think about it at all? No, sir. Do you ever think? No, sir. I mean, yes, sir. Then will you please think what you are saying now? Yes, sir. You say that you took all these important letters out of the house, without authority, and without acquainting the police? I had my orders, sir. From whom? It was His Grace's orders, sir. Are oh, His Grace's orders? When did you get that order? It was part of my regular duty, sir, to take the bag to the post each morning. And did it not occur to you that in a case like this the proper information of the police might be more important than your orders? No, sir. Sir Wigmore sat down with a disgusted look, and Sir Impey took the witness in hand again. Did the thought of this letter delivered to Captain Cathcart never pass through your mind between the day of the death and the day when Mr. Murbles spoke to you about it? Well, it did pass through my mind in a manner of speaking, sir. When was that? Before the grand jury, sir. And how was it you didn't speak about it then? The gentleman said I was to confine myself to the questions and not say nothing on my own, sir. Who was this very peremptory gentleman? The lawyer that came down to ask questions for the Crown, sir. Thank you, said Mr. Impey smoothly, sitting down, and leaning over to say something apparently of an amusing nature to Mr. Glibbery. The question of the letter was further pursued in the examination of the Honourable Freddy. So Wigmore Rinching laid great stress upon this witness's assertion that deceased had been in excellent health and spirits when retiring to bed on the Wednesday evening, and had spoken of his approaching marriage. "'He seemed particularly cheerio, you know,' said the Honourable Freddy. "'Particularly what?' inquired the Lord High Steward. "'Cheerio, my lord,' said Sir Wigmore with a deprecatory bow. "'I do not know whether that is a dictionary word,' said his lordship, entering it upon his notes with meticulous exactness. "'But I take it to be synonymous with cheerful.' The Honourable Freddy, appealed to, said he thought he meant more than just cheerful, more merry and bright, you know. "'May we take it that he was in exceptionally lively spirits?' suggested counsel. "'Take it in any spirit you like,' muttered the witness, adding, more happily, "'Take a peg of John Begg!' The deceased was particularly lively and merry when he went to bed, said Sir Wigmore, frowning horribly, and looking forward to his marriage in the near future. Would that be a fair statement of his condition? The Honourable Freddy agreed to this. Sir Impey did not cross-examine as to witness's account of the quarrel, but went straight to his point. Do you recollect anything about the letters that were brought in the night of the death? Yes, I had one for my aunt. The colonel had some, I fancy, and there was one for Cathcart. Did Captain Cathcart read his letter there and then? No, I'm sure he didn't. 
You see, I opened mine, and then I saw he was shoving his away in his pocket, and I thought, Never mind what you thought, said Sir Impey. What did you do? I said, Excuse me, you don't mind, do you? And he said, Not at all, but he didn't read his. And I remember thinking, We can't have that, you know, said the Lord High Steward. But that's why I'm so sure he didn't open it, said the Honourable Freddy, hurt. You see, I said to myself at the time what a secretive fellow he was, and that's how I know. Sir Wigmore, who had bounced up with his mouth open, sat down again. Thank you, Mr. Arbuthnot, said Sir Impey, smiling. Colonel and Mrs. Marchbanks testified to having heard movements in the Duke's study at eleven-thirty. They had heard no shot or other noise. There was no cross-examination. Mr. Pettigrew Robinson gave a vivid account of the quarrel, and asserted very positively that there could be no mistaking the sound of the Duke's bedroom door. "'We were then called up by Mr. Arbuthnot at a little after three a.m.,' proceeded witness, "'and went down to the conservatory, where I saw the accused and Mr. Arbuthnot washing the face of the deceased. I pointed out to them what an unwise thing it was to do this, as they might be destroying valuable evidence for the police.' They paid no attention to me. There were a number of footmarks round about the door which I wanted to examine, but it was my theory that— My lords, cried Sir Impey, we really cannot have this witness's theory. Certainly not, said the Lord High Steward. Answer the questions, please, and don't add anything on your own account. Of course, said Mr. Pettigrew Robinson. I don't mean to imply that there was anything wrong about it, but I considered— Never mind what you considered. Attend to me, please. When you first saw the body, how was it lying? On its back, with Denver and Arbuthnot washing its face. It had evidently been turned over because— Sir Wigmore, interposed the Lord High Steward, you really must control your witness. Kindly confine yourself to the evidence— said Sir Wigmore, rather heated. We do not want your deductions from it. You say that when you saw the body it was lying on its back, is that correct? And Denver and Arbuthnot were washing it. Yes. I want to pass to another point. Do you remember an occasion when you lunched at the Royal Automobile Club? I do. I lunched there one day in the middle of last August. I think it was about the 16th or 17th. Will you tell us what happened on that occasion? I had gone into the smoke-room after lunch, and was reading in a high-backed armchair, when I saw the prisoner at the bar come in with the late Captain Cathcart. That is to say, I saw them in the big mirror over the mantelpiece. They did not notice there was anyone there, or they would have been a little more careful what they said, I fancy. They sat down near me and started talking, and presently Cathcart leaned over and said something in a low tone which I couldn't catch. The prisoner leapt up with a horrified face, exclaiming, For God's sake, don't give me away, Cathcart. There'd be the devil to pay. Cathcart said something reassuring. I didn't hear what. He had a furtive sort of voice. And the prisoner replied, Well, don't, that's all. I couldn't afford to let anybody get hold of it. The prisoner seemed greatly alarmed. Captain Cathcart was laughing. They dropped their voices again, and that was all I heard. Thank you. Sir Impey took over the witness with a Belial-like politeness. 
You are gifted with the very excellent powers of observation and deduction, Mr. Pettigrew Robinson, he began. And no doubt you like to exercise your sympathetic imagination in a scrutiny of people's motives and characters. I think I may call myself a student of human nature, replied Mr. Pettigrew Robinson, much mollified. Doubtless. People are inclined to confide in you? Certainly. I may say I am a great repository of human documents. On the night of Captain Cathcart's death, your wide knowledge of the world was doubtless of great comfort and assistance to the family. They did not avail themselves of my experience, sir, said Mr. Pettigrew Robinson, exploding suddenly. I was ignored completely. If only my advice had been taken at the time. Thank you, thank you, said Sir Impey cutting short an impatient exclamation from the Attorney-General, who thereupon rose and demanded, "'If Captain Cathcart had had any secret trouble of any kind in his life, you would have expected him to tell you about it?' "'From any right-minded young man, I might certainly have expected it,' said Mr. Pettigrew Robinson blusteringly. "'But Captain Cathcart was disagreeably secretive. On the only occasion when I showed a friendly interest in his affairs, he was very rude indeed. He called me— That'll do, interposed Sir Impey hastily, the answer to the question not having turned out as he expected. What the deceased called you is immaterial. Mr. Pettigrew Robinson retired, leaving behind him the impression of a man with a grudge, an impression which seemed to please Mr. Glibbery and Mr. Brownrigg Fortescue extremely for they chuckled continuously through the evidence of the next two witnesses. Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson had little to add to her previous evidence at the inquest. Miss Cathcart was asked by Sir Impey about Cathcart's parentage, and explained, with deep disapproval in her voice, that her brother, when an all-too-experienced and middle-aged man of the world, had nevertheless been entangled by an Italian singer of nineteen, who had contrived to make him marry her. Eighteen years later, both parents had died. No wonder, said Miss Cathcart, with the rackety life they led, and the boy had been left to her care. She explained how Dennis had always chafed at her influence, gone about with men she disapproved of, and eventually gone to Paris to make a diplomatic career for himself, since which time she had hardly seen him. An interesting point was raised in the cross-examination of Inspector Crakes, a penknife being shown him, he identified it as the one found on Cathcart's body. By Mr. Glibbery. Do you observe any marks on the blade? Yes, there is a slight notch near the handle. Might the mark have been caused by forcing back the catch of a window? Inspector Craigs agreed that it might, but doubted whether so small a knife would have been adequate for such a purpose. The revolver was produced, and the question of ownership raised. My lords, put in Sir Impey. We do not dispute the Duke's ownership of the revolver. The court looked surprised, and after hard draw the gamekeeper had given evidence of the shot heard at eleven-thirty, the medical evidence was taken. Sir Impey Biggs. Could the wound have been self-inflicted? It could, certainly. Would it have been instantly fatal? No. From the amount of blood found upon the path, it was obviously not immediately fatal. Are the marks found, in your opinion, consistent with deceased having crawled towards the house? Yes, quite. He might have had sufficient strength to do so. Would such a wound cause fever? 
it is quite possible. He might have lost consciousness for some time and contracted a chill and fever by lying in the wet. Are the appearances consistent with his having lived for some hours after being wounded? They strongly suggest it. Re-examining, Sir Wigmore Rinching established that the wound and general appearance of the ground were equally consistent with the theory that deceased had been shot by another hand at very close quarters and dragged to the house before life was extinct. In your experience, is it more usual for a person committing suicide to shoot himself in the chest or in the head? In the head is perhaps more usual, so much as almost to create a presumption of murder when the wound is in the chest. I would not go so far as that. But other things being equal, you would say that a wound in the head is more suggestive of suicide than a body wound. That is so, Sir Impey Biggs. But suicide by shooting in the heart is not by any means impossible. Oh dear, no. There have been such cases. Oh, certainly, many such. There is nothing in the medical evidence before you to exclude the idea of suicide. Nothing whatever. This closed the case for the Crown. Chapter 15. Bar Falling. Copyright by Reuter, Press Association Exchange Telegraph, and Central News. When Sir Impey Biggs rose to make his opening speech for the defence on the second day, it was observed that he looked somewhat worried, a thing very unusual in him. His remarks were very brief, yet in those few words he sent a thrill through the great assembly. My lords, in rising to open this defence I find myself in a more than usually anxious position. Not that I have any doubt of your lordship's verdict. Never, perhaps, has it been possible so clearly to prove the innocence of any accused person, as in the case of my noble client. But I will explain to your lordships at once, that I may be obliged to ask for an adjournment, since we are at present without an important witness and a decisive piece of evidence. My lords, I hold here in my hand a cablegram from this witness. I will tell you his name. It is Lord Peter Whimsey, the brother of the accused. It was handed in yesterday at New York. I will read it to you. He says, Evidence secured. Leaving tonight with Air Pilot Grant. Sworn copy and depositions follow by S.S. Lucania in case accident. Hope arrive Thursday, my lords. At this moment, this all-important witness is cleaving the air high above the wide Atlantic. In this wintry weather, he is braving a peril which would appall any heart but his own and that of the world-famous aviator whose help he has enlisted so that no moment may be lost in freeing his noble brother from this terrible charge. My lords, the barometer is falling. An immense hush, like the stillness of a black frost, had fallen over the glittering benches. The lords in their scarlet and ermine, the peeresses in their rich furs, counsel in their full-bottomed wigs and billowing gowns, the Lord High Steward upon his high seat, the ushers and the heralds and the gaudy kings of arms rested rigid in their places. Only the prisoner looked across at his council and back to the Lord High Steward in a kind of bewilderment, 
and the reporters scribbled wildly and desperately stop press announcements, lurid headlines, picturesque epithets, and alarming weather predictions, to halt hurrying London on its way. Piers' son flies Atlantic. Brother's devotion. Will Whimsy be in time? Riddlesdale murder charge. Amazing development. This was news. A million tape machines ticked it out in offices and clubs, where clerks and messenger boys gloated over it and laid wagers on the result. The thousands of monster printing presses sucked it in, boiled it into lead, clamped it into slugs, engulfed it in their huge maws, digested it to paper, and flapped it forth again with clutching talons. And a blue-nosed, ragged veteran of Vimy Ridge, who had once assisted to dig Major Whimsy out of a shell-hole, muttered, "'God help him. He's a real decent little blighter.' As he tucked his newspapers into the iron grill of a tree in Kingsway, and displayed his placard to the best advantage. After a brief statement that he intended, not merely to prove his noble client's innocence, but, as a work of supererogation, to make clear every detail of the tragedy, Sir Impey Biggs proceeded without further delay to call his witnesses. Among the first was Mr. Goyles, who testified that he had found Cathcart already dead at 3 a.m., with his head close to the water trough which stood near the well. Ellen, the maidservant, next confirmed James Fleming's evidence with regard to the post-bag, and explained how she changed the blotting paper in the study every day. The evidence of Detective Inspector Parker aroused more interest and some bewilderment. His description of the discovery of the green-eyed cat was eagerly listened to. He also gave a minute account of the footprints and marks of dragging, especially the imprint of a hand in the flower-bed. The piece of blotting paper was then produced, and photographs of it circulated among the peers. A long discussion ensued on both these points, Sir Impey Biggs endeavouring to show that the imprint on the flower-bed was such as would have been caused by a man endeavouring to lift himself from a prone position, Sir Wigmore Rinching doing his best to force an admission that it might have been made by deceased in trying to prevent himself from being dragged along. The position of the fingers being towards the house appears, does it not, to negative the suggestion of dragging, suggested Sir Impey. Sir Wigmore, however, put it to the witness that the wounded man might have been dragged head foremost. If now, said Sir Wigmore, I were to drag you by the coat collar, my lords will grasp my contention. It appears, observed the Lord High Steward, to be a case for solvitur ambulando. Laughter. I suggest that when the house rises for lunch, some of us should make the experiment, choosing a member of similar height and weight to the deceased. All the noble lords looked round at one another to see which unfortunate might be chosen for the part. Inspector Parker then mentioned the marks of forcing on the study window. In your opinion... Could the catch have been forced back by the knife found on the body of the deceased? I know it could, for I made the experiment myself with a knife of exactly similar pattern. After this, the message on the blotting paper was read backwards and forwards and interpreted in every possible way, the defence insisting that the language was French, and the words, Je suis fou de douleur. The prosecution scouting the suggestion is far-fetched, and offering an English interpretation such as his found or his foul. A handwriting expert was then called, 
who compared the handwriting with that of an authentic letter of Cathcart's, and was subsequently severely handled by the prosecution. These knotty points being left for the consideration of the noble lords, the defence then called a tedious series of witnesses, the manager of Cox's and Monsieur Turgeot of the Crédit Lyonnais, who went with much detail into Cathcart's financial affairs, the concierge at Madame Leblanc from the Rue Saint-Honoré, and the noble lords began to yawn, with the exception of a few of the soap and pickles lords, who suddenly started to make computations in their notebooks, and exchanged looks of intelligence as from one financier to another. Then came Monsieur Briquet, the jeweller from the Rue de la Paix, and the girl from his shop, who told the story of the tall, fair foreign lady and the purchase of the green-eyed cat, whereat everybody woke up. After reminding the assembly that this incident took place in February, when Cathcart's fiancée was in Paris, Sir Impey invited the jeweller's assistant to look round the house and tell them if she saw the foreign lady. This proved lengthy business, but the answer was finally in the negative. "'I do not want there to be any doubt about this,' said Sir Impey, "'and with the learned Attorney-General's permission I am now going to confront this witness with Lady Mary Whimsey.' Lady Mary was accordingly placed before the witness, who replied immediately and positively, No, this is not the lady. I have never seen this lady in my life. There is the resemblance of height and colour, and the hair bobbed, but there is nothing else at all, not the least in the world. It is not the same type at all. Mademoiselle is a charming English lady, and the man who marries her will be very happy. But the other was a belle à se suicider, a woman to kill, Suicide oneself, or send all to the devil for, and believe me, gentlemen, with a wide smile to her distinguished audience, we have the opportunity to see them in my business. There was a profound sensation as this witness took her departure, and Sir Impey scribbled a note and passed it down to Mr. Murbles. It contained one word, magnificent. Mr. Murbles scribbled back, Never said a word to her. Can you beat it? and leaned back in his seat smirking like a very neat little grotesque from a gothic corbel. The witness who followed was Professor Haber, a distinguished exponent of international law, who described Cathcart's promising career as a rising young diplomat in Paris before the war. He was followed by a number of officers, who testified to the excellent war record of the deceased. Then came a witness who gave the aristocratic name of Dubois Gobet Houdin, who perfectly recollected a very uncomfortable dispute on a certain occasion when playing cards with Le Capitaine Cathcart, and having subsequently mentioned the matter to Monsieur Thomas Freeborn, the distinguished English engineer. It was Parker's diligence that had unearthed this witness, and he looked across with an undisguised grin at the discomfited Sir Wigmore Rinching. When Mr. Glibbery had dealt with all these, the afternoon was well advanced, and the Lord High Steward accordingly asked the lords, if it was their pleasure, that the house be adjourned till the next day at ten-thirty of the clock in the forenoon, and the lords replying, I, in a most exemplary chorus, the house was accordingly adjourned. A scurry of swift black clouds with ragged edges was driving bleakly westward as they streamed out into Parliament Square, and the seagulls screeched and wheeled inwards from the river. Charles Parker wrapped his ancient Burberry closely about him as he scrambled on to a bus to get home to Great Ormond Street. 
It was only one more drop in his cup of discomfort that the conductor greeted him with, Outside only, and rang the bell before he could get off again. He climbed to the top and sat there holding his hat on. Mr. Bunter returned sadly to 110 Piccadilly and wandered restlessly about the flat till seven o'clock when he came into the sitting-room and switched on the loudspeaker. "'London calling,' said the unseen voice impartially. Two L.O. calling. Here is the weather forecast. A deep depression is crossing the Atlantic, and a secondary is stationary over the British Isles. Storms with heavy rain and sleet will be prevalent rising to a gale in the south and southwest. You never know, said Bunter. I suppose I'd better light a fire in his bedroom. Further outlook similar. Chapter 16 The Second String Oh, when he came to Broken Briggs, he bent his bow and swam. And when he came to the green grass growing, he slackened his shoe and ran. And when he came to Lord Willem's gates, he bade not to chop na care, but set his bent bow till his breast, and lightly lopped away. Ballad of Lady Maisry Lord Peter peered out through the cold scurry of cloud. The thin struts of steel, incredibly fragile, swung slowly across the gleam and glint far below, where the wide country dizzied out and spread like a revolving map. In front, the sleek leather back of his companion humped stubbornly, sheeted with rain. He hoped that Grant was feeling confident. The roar of the engine drowned the occasional shout he threw to his passenger as they lurched from gust to gust. He withdrew his mind from present discomforts and went over that last strange hurried scene. Fragments of conversation spun through his head. Mademoiselle, I have scoured two continents in search of you. Voyons, then this is urgent. But be quick, for the big bear may come in and be grumpy, and I do not like des histoires. There had been a lamp on a low table. He remembered the gleam through the haze of short gold hair. She was a tall girl, but slender, looking up at him from the huge black and gold cushions. Mademoiselle, it is incredible to me that you should ever— Dine or dance with a person called Van Humperdinck. Now what had possessed him to say that, when there was so little time, and Jerry's affairs were of such importance? Monsieur Van Humperdinck does not dance. Did you seek me through two continents to say that? No, I am serious. Eh bien, sit down. She had been quite frank about it. Yes, poor soul. But life was very expensive since the war. I refused several good things, but always des histoires, and so little money. You see, one must be sensible. There's one's old age. It is necessary to be provident, eh? Huh? Assuredly. She had a little accent, very familiar. At first he could not place it. Then it came to him. Vienna, before the war, that capital of incredible follies. Yes, yes, I wrote. I was very kind, very sensible. I said, Je ne suis pas femme à supporter de gros ennuis. Cela se comprend, n'est-ce pas? That was readily understood. The plane dived sickly into a sudden pocket, the propeller whirring helplessly in the void, then steadied, 
and began to nose up the opposite spiral. I saw it in the papers, yes, poor boy. Why should anyone have shot him? Mademoiselle, it is for that I have come to you. My brother, whom I dearly love, is accused of the murder. He may be hanged. <sighs> for a murder he did not commit. Mon pauvre enfant. Mademoiselle, I implore you to be serious. My brother is accused and will be standing his trial. Once her attention had been caught, she had been all sympathy. Her blue eyes had a curious and attractive trick, a full lower lid that shut them into glimmering slits. Mademoiselle, I implore you, try to remember what was in his letter. But mon pauvre ami, how can I? I did not read it. It was very long, very tedious, full of histoire. The thing was finished. I never bother about what cannot be helped, do you? But his real agony at this failure had touched her. Listen, then. All is perhaps not lost. It is possible the letter is still somewhere about. Or we will ask Adele. She is my mate. She collects letters to blackmail people. Oh, yes, I know. But she is a bill come too pour la toilette. Wait, we will look first. Tossing out letters, trinkets, endless perfumed rubbish from the little Jim Crack secretaire, from little drawers full of lingerie. I am so untidy. I am Adele's despair. From bags, hundreds of bags, and at last Adele, thin-lipped and wary-eyed, denying everything till her mistress suddenly slapped her face in a fury and called her ugly little names in French and German. It is useless, then, said Lord Peter. What a pity that Mademoiselle Adèle cannot find a thing so valuable to me. The word valuable suggested an idea to Adèle. There was Mademoiselle's jewel case, which had not been searched. She would fetch it. C'est cela que cherchez, monsieur? After that sudden arrival of Mr. Cornelius Van Humperdinck, very rich and stout and suspicious, and the rewarding of Adèle in a tactful, unobtrusive fashion by the elevator shaft, Grant shouted, but the words flipped feebly away into the blackness and were lost. What? bawled Whimsy in his ear. He shouted again, and this time the word juice shot into sound and fluttered away. But whether the news was good or bad, Lord Peter could not tell. Mr. Murbles was aroused a little after midnight by a thunderous knocking upon his door. Thrusting his head out of the window in some alarm, he saw the porter with his lantern steaming through the rain, and behind him a shapeless figure, which for the moment Mr. Murbles could not make out. "'What's the matter?' said the solicitor. "'Young lady asking urgently for you, sir.' The shapeless figure looked up, and he caught the spangle of gold hair in the lantern light under the little tight hat. "'Mr. Murbles, please come. Bunter rang me up. There's a woman come to give evidence. Bunter doesn't like to leave her. She's frightened.' "'but he says it's frightfully important, "'and Bunter's always right, you know.' "'Did he mention the name?' Uh, "'Mrs. Grimethorpe. "'God bless me. "'Just a moment, my dear young lady, "'and I will let you in.' "'And indeed, more quickly than might have been expected, "'Mr. Murbles made his appearance "'in a Jaeger dressing-gown in the front door. "'Come in, my dear. "'I will get dressed in a very few minutes. "'It was quite right of you to come to me. "'I'm very, very glad you did. "'What a terrible night. "'Perkins?' "'Would you kindly wake up Mr. Murphy "'and ask him to oblige me with the use of his telephone?' "'Mr. Murphy, a noisy Irish barrister with a hearty manner, "'needed no waking. 
He was entertaining a party of friends and was delighted to be of service. Is that you, Biggs? Merble speaking. That alibi? Yes. Has come along of its own accord. My God, you don't say so. Can you come round to 110 Piccadilly? Straight away. It was a strange little party gathered round Lord Peter's fire. The white-faced woman, who started at every sound. The men of law, with their keen, disciplined faces. Lady Mary. Bunter, the efficient. Mrs. Grimethorpe's story was simple enough. She had suffered the torments of knowledge ever since Lord Peter had spoken to her. She had seized an hour when her husband was drunk in the Lord in Glory, and had harnessed the horse and driven into Stapley. I couldn't keep silence. It's better my man should kill me, for I'm unhappy enough, and maybe I couldn't be any worse off in the Lord's hand, rather than they should hang him for the thing he never done. It was kind, and I was desperate and miserable, that's the truth, and I'm hoping his lady won't be hard on him when she knows it all. No, no said Mr. Murbles, clearing his throat. "'Excuse me a moment, madam. Uh, Sir Impey?' The lawyers whispered together in the window-seat. "'You see,' said Sir Impey, "'she has burnt her boats pretty well now by coming at all. The great question for us is, is it worth the risk? After all, we don't know what Whimsy's evidence amounts to.' "'No, that is why I feel inclined, in spite of the risk, to put this evidence in.' said Mr. Murbles. "'I am ready to take the risk,' interposed Mrs. Grimthorpe starkly. "'We quite appreciate that,' replied Sir Impey. "'It is the risk to our client we have to consider, first of all.' "'Risk?' cried Mary. "'But surely this clears him.' "'Will you swear absolutely to the time when His Grace of Denver arrived at Grider's Hole, Mrs. Grimthorpe?' went on the lawyer, as though he had not heard her. It was a quarter past twelve by the kitchen clock. It is a very good clock. And he left you... About five minutes past two. And how long would it take a man, walking quickly, to get back to Riddlesdale Lodge? Oh, well, nigh an hour. It's rough walking, and a steep bank up and down to the beck. You mustn't let the other council upset you on these points, Mrs. Grimethorpe, because they will try to prove that he had time to kill Cathcart either before he started or after he returned, and by admitting that the Duke had something in his life that he wanted kept secret, we shall be supplying the very thing the prosecution lack, a motive for murdering anyone who might have found him out. There was a stricken silence. If I may ask, madam, said Sir Impey, has any person any suspicion? My husband guessed, she answered hoarsely, I am sure of it. He is always known. But he couldn't prove it. That very night. What night? The night of the murder. He laid a trap for me. He came back from Stapley in the night, hoping to catch us and do murder. But he drank too much before he started, and spent the night in the ditch. It might be Gerald's death you'd be inquiring into and mine, as well as the other. It gave Mary an odd shock to hear her brother's name spoken like that by that speaker, and in that company. She asked suddenly, apropos of nothing, "'Isn't Mr. Parker here?' "'No, my dear,' said Mr. Murbles reprovingly. "'This is not a police matter.' "'The best thing we can do, I think,' said Sir Impey, 
is to put in evidence, and if necessary, arrange for some kind of protection for this lady. In the meantime, she is coming round with me to mother, said Lady Mary determinedly. My dear lady, expostulated Mr. Murbles, that would be very unsuitable in the circumstances. I think you hardly grasp. Mother said so, retorted her ladyship. Bunter, call a taxi. Mr. Murbles waved his hands helplessly, but Sir Impey was rather amused. "'It's no good, Murbles,' he said. "'Time and trouble will tame an advanced young woman, but an advanced old woman is uncontrollable by any earthly force.' So it was from the Dowager's townhouse that Lady Mary rang up Mr. Charles Parker to tell him the news. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Clouds of Witness, Part 8 of 9, by Dorothy Sayers. If you've enjoyed this episode, please become a supporter by going to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>